Once again, we certainly welcome you to our assembly. We're thankful that you're here, and we appreciate the presence of uh, every person who is here tonight. I know that it is difficult to hasten about the affairs of the day, to maybe miss dinner even, and get to the assembly, and I appreciate that very much. Appreciate everyone coming. We're going to begin a series of studies tonight. We're going to go a few nights, and we're going to talk about the history of the church through the ages. Now, in Zambia, sometimes I started in the Old Testament. We're going to do a little bit of Old Testament study tonight, but mostly we're going to focus, of course, on uh, the New Testament. Uh, first of all, David spoke in Psalms 118 some very interesting words, and this applies to, uh, of course, the church and Jesus and the apostles. He says here, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, we know that the stone the builders rejected is Jesus. We know that the stone that uh, is written about and spoken of in the Old Testament is, was, and always will be Jesus Christ. And so David foresees in this passage that Jesus Christ, the stone, is rejected by the builders. Now the builders are the Jews. You see, the Messiah and the kingdom was to come through the Jews. The builders rejected the stone. They rejected Jesus Christ. But notice what it says. Even though they've rejected him, he has become the chief cornerstone. Now, this is something that we need to remember about God. God is sovereign. Now, if they had accepted him, he still could have been glorified and he still would have established his kingdom. But things and people and circumstances would have been a little different. But even though they rejected him, even though they were the ones that were the, the harbinger or the carrier of the gospel, even though they were the ones that were the protector of the scriptures, the very truths that they rejected, God still had his way and he still accomplished his mission. Now he did not make them reject Jesus. But God, of course, has the ability to see through time. He has the ability to see how people will react. And in that midst, he still allows us free choice. He still gives us the freedom and the choice of choosing right or wrong. He doesn't want us to be robots. He wants us to give our whole lives, our whole hearts to him. He wants us to surrender our will to his will. But we have a choice. We always have a choice. They even had a choice of whether or not they rejected Jesus or not. But notice that David says, this is... Uh, several hundred years before Jesus ever came on the scene. And he said, the stone which the builders rejected will become the chief cornerstone or the beginning point of the foundation. So Jesus is the beginning of the foundation. Notice now, this was the Lord's doing. Now when did Jesus become the chief cornerstone? Was it while he was on the earth? You know, he prayed in John chapter 17, glorify thou me with the glory that I had with you at the beginning. He hadn't been, he hadn't been exalted at that point. He had to die first. And in his resurrection, in his resurrection, that's when he was glorified. That's when he became the chief cornerstone. Now notice this. The foundation is started 
50 days before Acts chapter 2, and this is significant, this is important to understand. The foundation is not complete. And until the foundation is complete, you cannot have a building. But even if the foundation becomes complete, you still don't have a building until you add the structure to the foundation. Now think about this, because this is going to be very important as we, as we develop this, as we study this. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. He tells us that the Lord resurrected Jesus, would bring this stone that was rejected back from the dead, and it would be known that God had done this because he alone is sovereign and has the power over death. Notice this. This is the day the Lord has made. Notice he tells us that the Lord made this day special. Now, people tell us, people tell us that it was the Roman Catholic Church that introduced uh, worship on the first day. Now, when the church was started in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost meant that it was the first day. If you go back to the law concerning the, the, the day of Pentecost, they were to count seven Saturdays. Now, seven times seven is 41. When you look at Leviticus chapter 23, and you find that you had to have 49, seven Saturdays. And then, of course, he said the next day plus one day, that's 50. Now, if you count seven Saturdays and you end on the 49th day, you're still on Saturday. But you add one more to that, you get 50. That's what the word Pentecost means. And when you add one more day to that, that's the first day of the week. Now, isn't it interesting that the church started on the first day of the week? The first day that Christians worshipped, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, was on the first day of the week. It was upon the first day of the week that the disciples came together to break bread, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Years later, Paul writes to the church at Corinth about a special uh, observance, about a special contribution for the saints in Judea. And uh, he says, you've made a promise. And he says, when you come together on the first day of the week, I want you to keep that promise. Now, why did he say that? Because they came together every first day. And they were to make that special contribution like they made every contribution on the first day of the week. Listen to me, folks. When people tell you that Jesus wants us to meet on the seventh day, you better show them that God made a special day for worship. And it was the first day, the day that Jesus was resurrected. Now, it was on the first day that Jesus became the chief cornerstone. Again, Look at this verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. It tells us further about this stone, this chief cornerstone, and this foundation. He tells us in this passage that the foundation is made up of more than just Jesus, that Jesus alone does not complete the foundation. It says, now therefore you are no, more, are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So whatever he's talking about in this passage, he's talking about the household or the house of God. They're one and the same. You're just using a different expression. The household of God. Now, the house of God is always spiritual. So he's not talking about a building. He's talking about people. 
Now notice what he says. You are no longer strangers. You're no longer foreigners, but you're fellow citizens of God's house. Look at what he says further. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now look at this. The foundation is the apostles and the prophets. Now Jesus was the stone. He became the chief cornerstone and added to that beginning of the foundation was the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now you have the foundation complete. But when did that foundation complete occur? Now we know that Jesus was made the headstone at his resurrection. So when did the apostles become the foundation of the church? Well, let's study further. Notice what he says in verse 21. In whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So God's house is also referred to as a temple in the Lord. Notice now, he does not say that you and I are a temple. You know, we sometimes make that mistake. Over there in Corinthians, it says we are the temple of God. If you look that word up, we, if you look up that word you, you, he says, are the temple of God. It means we are the temple of God, not one person, see. I'm not the church. I'm not the house of God. I'm not the family of God alone. Now remember that because that's very important. The idea is that Christians, as we're going to study, make up the house of God or the temple of God. And the whole building fitted together makes up the church of the living God. Now let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone. Speaking of Jesus, and again referring to this Psalm 118. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also. Look at that. As living stones. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets are the completion of the foundation. And now Peter is writing to Christians and he says that you folks are a part of the house and you folks are living stones. And he says those living stones are built up a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Again, he told about that cornerstone. Elect precious, and, who, and he who believes on him shall by no means be put to shame. Now, Jesus Christ, the apostles, the prophets are the foundation. The living stones are added to the foundation. And now you have the church. The spiritual house, the household of God, the temple of the Lord. Now, you're going to see what I'm talking about here in a minute. The foundation, the stones, and then the building. You can't have the building without the stones. You can't have the building without the foundation. So what happens on the day of Pentecost? Have you ever wondered why the apostles weren't baptized on that day? You ever wondered why it's not recorded? Now, we got pretty strong evidence that they were baptized under the commission of John. 
But have you ever wondered why they weren't baptized? Look at this. They were a part. They were the foundation. And on the day of Pentecost, the foundation was added to by the stones. Now there's significance to this. The foundation, the stones, and then the building. Now, God's house we know is the church. That's without uh, qualification. First uh, uh, Peter chapter 3 verse 15 clearly states that. Other passages, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 21 through 23. Now those in God's house are where? We know they're in the church. We're, we're investigating the church of Jesus Christ from heaven's point of view. Now, look at this. John the Baptist preached about the kingdom coming in the future. He said the kingdom of God is at hand. And then we want to talk about the church today and how we identify the church today. In fact, the purpose of our study is to identify the church of Jesus Christ. Now, in Matthew chapter 3, John comes on the scene. Now, this is before Jesus becomes the cornerstone. So we know that the church could not have existed during the days of John the Baptist. Out the door goes any church that claims to be built upon John the Baptist. The church did not exist during the lifetime of John the Baptist. In those days, uh, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near, it's about to come on the earth, but it is not yet here. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus began his ministry and he said, Repent, well, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached the same thing that John preached. He preached that the kingdom was yet future. Again, Jesus preached the same thing. I want to emphasize that, the same thing as John. And so the church did not come, the kingdom did not come during the days of John the Baptist. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19, that he was going to build his church. He said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom in the same context. He used the terms church and kingdom in this context interchangeably. But be careful. <laughs> be careful. Because the terms church and kingdom are not synonymous. Not everybody in the kingdom is in the church, but everybody in the church is in the kingdom. Now let me, let me help you with that. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus says that people are going to come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they're going to sit down in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the sons of the kingdom are going to be cast out. Have you ever had to discuss that with somebody who believes that the kingdom is future? And then they'll ask you if the kingdom and the church are the same thing, if they're synonymous. Was Abraham in the church? He's in the kingdom of heaven. Well, there's a lot of things we can say about the kingdom. We don't have time to study tonight. But I want to say this. What you need to realize is that the term kingdom, as far as uh, we're concerned, from Pentecost on, everybody in the kingdom on the earth is in the church. No doubt about that. You cannot be in the kingdom today since Pentecost unless you're in the church. You have to be in the church. And so there is a connection. You can't separate them. But what I want you to understand is the church is the earthly realm of the heavenly kingdom. Now, for example, children 
are not in the church. But you see, they're born innocent and they're in the kingdom of heaven. But when they sin, they fall out of God's kingdom of heaven and they have to be restored and they're restored back to God's grace through the church. Now think about that. It's difficult to, to understand the concept of the kingdom and the church because sometimes the kingdom is bigger than the church and includes angels and God and so forth. But the point is, as far as we're concerned today, from Pentecost forward, any earthly person that's saved is in the church. And that makes him a citizen of the kingdom. Jesus uses these terms in that sense interchangeably there in Matthew chapter 16. Now let's go to Acts chapter 2. Therefore let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, the promise is to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Then it says in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who would be saved. Now, there are a lot of versions that take out the word church. And uh, there are a lot of scholars that believe that in the original language, the word church was not in Acts 2, verse 47. In fact, uh, some modern versions translate it, added to them. Now, let's suppose the word church is not in there. Now, I don't personally believe that it isn't, but I, but I want to just give people the benefit of the doubt for a moment. Think about it. Suppose it does just say, the Lord adds, adds, them, adds people to them. Well, who are the them? Who's he talking about? He's talking about the foundation that was laid before the day of Pentecost. Or actually on the day of Pentecost. In a moment we're going to read where that uh, foundation was completed when the Holy Spirit came. So the point is, when the Holy Spirit came, the foundation was complete and the apostles preached the gospel for the first time. But the church was not yet established until there were stones to add to the building. When you had the foundation plus the stones... Then you had the building, and the building is the church. So whether the term church is there or not, it doesn't matter. Because if they were added to the apostles, they were added to the foundation, and that made the church. That completed the church. So we have the church being established here. Notice what Peter says in Acts chapter 11, verse 15. Now, remember the circumstances of what he says here. Look at what he says. And as I begin to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. What's he talking about? We don't have to depend on anybody to tell us that Acts 2 is the beginning because Peter's talking about the Acts 2. He's gone to the house of Cornelius in Acts the 10th chapter and he's preached the gospel to the Jews. While he's preaching to the, I mean to the Gentiles, while he's preaching to the Gentiles, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit fell down and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. That is the Gentiles were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And Peter is back in Jerusalem now, and just like he thought, you know, you remember, if you read Acts chapter 10, he took six witnesses with him. Did you ever wonder why? Because he knew he was going to be in trouble after he entered that house of the Gentiles. He knew he was going to be in trouble. So he wanted somebody to share that trouble, see. So he took six witnesses. Now he's explaining. And he says, 
Now this is what happened. These fellows can tell you, they, they can testify as to what happened. God poured out the Holy Spirit on these Gentiles on the house of Cornelius, showing us that they're now accepted into the kingdom without circumcision. God did that, just like he did on us at the beginning. When did he pour the Holy Spirit out? Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 clearly tells us that the Holy Spirit came. It came on the day of Pentecost, and it fell upon the apostles. So this is the beginning. The beginning of what? The church. It's the beginning of the church. How did these people get into the church? Well, they heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, they repented their sins, they confessed Jesus Christ, and they were baptized. And the Bible says there was no uh, testimony about their lives, there was no education other than the gospel that was preached that day. But on that day, the Bible says those who were being saved, those who were baptized, were added to the church, were added to his kingdom. Look at this, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Whereas many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Christ. Notice now, the Bible says that the same thing that adds us to the church or the same process that puts us into Christ, baptism, is the same process that puts us into the church. When we're baptized, we're added to the church. When we're baptized into water, into the death of Christ, we become a part of his body. We're citizens of his kingdom. People try to make a distinction between Christ and his church. People try to say that you can be a Christian and you can follow Jesus, but not be in the church. And they'll tell you, join the church of your choice. But you can't join the church of your choice. You're added to the Lord's church. Now, it's true in Acts chapter 9 that Paul went up to Jerusalem after he had been added to the church universal. And he tried to join himself to a local church. Now, I don't have time tonight to talk about all that needs to be said about that, but every Christian must join himself to a local church. Every Christian must be committed to a local church. The work of the church can only be done if you're committed to be there when the doors are open, if you're committed financially, if you're committed to give your time and energy and effort. The only way that we can do the work of the Lord, the only way that we can, we can complete the Great Commission is to be a part of a local church. But you can't join the church universal. Notice now, you're baptized into Christ, you're added to the church. They're one and the same. They're independent, yes. They're different, yes. But they're together, they're connected. You cannot separate them. You cannot be saved without Christ. No one would say that. Even out in the religious world, they believe you have to be connected to Christ. But the Bible teaches you have to be connected to Christ and the church. You see, that's what the Bible teaches. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, the scripture says, Far above all principality and power, and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Notice now this analogy, the church and the body. Now, one of the ways that we can determine which church is the right church is if that church follows, the church I'm a member of, or the church that we're members of, follows the dictates of the head. Now, the dictates of the head, of course, are found in the Bible. This is the last will and testimony of Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews chapter 9. 
Jesus said, he that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words with one that judgeth him, the words that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 48. Listen, you need to look at the church that you're a member of. And you need to study and search the scriptures. You need to be like those of Berea. You know, Paul went over there to Thessalonica and they rejected his preaching. In fact, they caused such a stir that he only could preach for two weeks. And he had to get out of there. Now I'm telling you, Paul is a man that was literally stoned to death because of his preaching when he was in Lystra. And he got right back up that day and went back in the city. He wasn't afraid of anything. But they caused such a stir that he couldn't do the work. And so he left Thessalonica. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, it says he got over there to Berea. And when he got to Berea, he learned something. He learned a difference in people. You know, we have to learn that lesson. It's not a, it's not a, if we go somewhere and try to build a church and it doesn't work, and we're not successful, it's not necessarily our fault if we've done our job. Now, obviously, we have to make inventory to make sure we did what we could. But if you go somewhere and it don't work, that don't necessarily mean that you're, that you're bad because Paul did, went places and it didn't work. But it got over there in Berea, and the Bible says these in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because, number one, they listened and received the word with all readiness of mind. They wanted the truth. That's one of the blessings to living in Zambia. You know, we would go out in the bush. I was telling Frankie tonight, and I'd set my projector up and, and preach a series on, on, uh, on uh, the history of the church. The first, you know, you have Catholics and Baptists and Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses. And the first night, you know, you're out there in the bush. And that's one thing different in Zambia or in, in Africa that's different in, in uh, the Philippines. It's hard to get away in the Philippines with civilization because there's so many people. Well, when you leave town... In Africa, you leave civilization. And uh, a 100-watt light bulb can be seen for miles, and I'd put about 10 of them. And I'm telling you, people would come from everywhere. And uh, a few times we held a week meeting. It, it was difficult to do that for a lot of reasons. I don't have time to talk about that. But a few times we held a week meeting. And the first night, man, there were just people all over out in the trees. You could see them. The next night, they were standing at the periphery. You know what they did is they built a... Uh, they take elephant grass. You know, elephant grass grows to about seven foot tall. And, they, and, and after the rainy season, of course, they're able to cut it. And, and they take that and then they cut some poles and put it in the ground and fix a, fix a, a peripheral area where people could come and, and kind of have, uh, have a, an enclosure. Maybe it'd seat 500 people and that'd fill up every night. And then people would be standing out there the next night and you'd see them. They'd be standing up at the, up at the grass and... And they're just amazed, and they come the next day and talk to some of the brethren because they, they just were just, in, they were just amazed by the gospel they were hearing. You know, they hadn't, they didn't hear people preach like that. And, and uh, uh, the third night, uh, some of them came inside. The fourth night, nearly all of them were inside. The fifth night, we start baptizing them. Catholics and Jehovah's Witnesses. The gospel's powerful. One of the reasons we have such difficulty in America is because we can't get people to come consistently. The Bible can, the gospel can, can convert people right here in Bakersfield if you could get them to come Monday through Friday. I guarantee you it would. We have trouble getting our members to come. And then we wonder why we can't get outsiders to come. 
The gospel is powerful, friends. And we all need to ask ourselves the question, is this church the right church? How do I know whether or not it's the right church? Well, if it's the body of Christ, it does what the Bible says because this is the words of the head, you see. Now, for example, you got people that tell us that uh, if you want to worship once a month or if you want to worship on Christmas or if you want to worship on Easter, that's good enough. In fact, you could miss church for six months and on Christmas, if you go to church, then you won't be guilty of any mortal sin and, and you'll go to heaven. Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together. That's a command. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we have an example of how that command was carried out. The first day of the week, the disciples came together. When you have a command, you have to obey it. We have an example, it's the only example, that tells us when that assembly was. So if a church teaches that you don't have to go to church except on Christmas, they're not teaching what the head's taught, see. And everything, everything that we believe or practice has to be based upon what the head has said. Those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all readiness of heart and searched the scriptures. You know what people do sometimes, even in the church? Let's see what Frankie has to say about that. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It's your responsibility to know the answer. It's your obligation to know the answer. It's not what Dwayne says or what Daryl says or what Terry says. It's not what Paul Nichols says. It's what the Bible says. It's what the Lord wants. And we, everyone, need to be men and women of the book. We need to study the Bible. And we need to know that what we do and what we say and what we practice is the Lord's will. So, Christ, his body, the church are inseparable. Notice now, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Look at this. If there is one church, if there is one body, and the body is the church, then there is one church. You know, it's, it's really kind of amazing. If you're studying with somebody, you get them to read the Bible, every time, if they will read the Bible in sincerity, they'll recognize that there's only one church in the Bible. But, but there's a problem. Because there are over 3,000 different churches in the world. Now, those are mainline churches. And to give you an example of what I mean by that, just in the Presbyterian church alone, there are a thousand different beliefs and doctrines and Presbyterian groups. <laughs> I mean, there's thousands of ideas today. But in the beginning, there was just one. There was just one church. There was one faith. There was one doctrine, my friends. And that's all there was. Now, which church was it? Well, in Romans chapter 16, it says the churches of Christ salute you. That's what we read from the head. That's what the head says. 
He calls it the Church of Christ. And yet we have 3,000 different mainline churches in the world. And so the, the devil has uh, done a good job to confuse people. They throw their hands up and they look at all the religious chaos and all the problems. Listen to me. We can complain about all the division in the religious world. Well, I'm telling you, we're divided in the Church of Christ too. And the Lord hates division. He hates it when we divide. Now, I know sometimes we have to when people leave the faith. We have to separate from them. The Bible teaches that. But we don't have to divide if we follow this book. If we walk according to this truth, we don't have to divide. Now, how did we get from one to 3,000? How'd that happen? How come you can take this book and you can only find one church and yet today, there are all these different faiths and all these different doctrines. Well, listen to this passage. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Listen to me, my friends. If there can be many churches, there can be many gods. And yet not one religious institution in this town that will say, join the church of your choosing will say there are many gods. We all believe there's just one. The same verse that says there's one God, one Lord Jesus, is the same verse that says there's one body, one church. Jude says, earnestly contend for the faith. Now listen to me. When you read the word, the faith, in the Bible, almost without exception, you can substitute the term or the phrase, the faith, with the word gospel. He's talking about the system of belief that has been revealed to us. He's talking about objective faith. Now, there are several different kinds of faith talking about that are spoken about in the Bible. But when it says there's one faith, he's talking about the objective saving faith. And of course, the object upon which faith is based is the Bible, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so through faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, there is a personal faith, and that's spoken of in Romans chapter 14. Now, I don't have time to study Romans 14 tonight, but I'm going to tell you something. When you study Romans 14, you cannot bring rules in there because he's not talking about rules. He's talking about matters of opinion, matters of difference. And I'm going to tell you, women letting their hair grow is not an opinion. That's a Bible truth that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 through 16. Drinking alcohol at any level is not right. That's not an opinion. That's a Bible truth. It's taught in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, and many, many other passages. And you can't bring it into Romans 14. Romans 14 is talking about personal faith, personal opinions. But we're talking about the one saving faith and Jude says we're to earnestly contend for that faith well one faith one church one kingdom one body one saving plan think about it what does all this mean how did all this change well look at this passage this is interesting 
Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Look at this, my friends. He says there's only one saving objective faith, but some are going to depart from that. You see, the true faith, Jude says, we're to contend for that. We're to stand on that. We're to believe in that. The truth is absolute. There's only one. But Paul said there would be some who depart. He said the Spirit has clearly, has vividly revealed that in the future, there's going to be more than one faith. Now, that's not the way God wanted it. You remember we talked about polygamy. God didn't want polygamy. But back under the old law, he tolerated that. He tolerated it in the sense that he allowed it, but he didn't necessarily approve of it. Now, God tolerates many faiths today. He allows them to exist. But listen to me, there's coming a day of pay. Payday is someday. And in the Bible, there's only one faith. And if I don't believe that one faith, I'm going to be lost. That's how serious it is. If you depart from the one saving faith, you will be lost. Now look at this. He further explains how we can identify those who have left the faith. Notice what he says. They're going to follow doctrines or plural of demons. And now, what does he mean by all this? Look at this. He identifies a couple of earmarks. He says, first of all, they're going to forbid to marry. Can you think of any churches that forbid to marry? You see, they claim to be the first church. And yet, Paul says, the second church is the one that's going to forbid to marry. Isn't that interesting? He says, further, they're going to command to abstain from foods. I remember when I was a boy, I loved to go out to eat on Friday at those buffet places because they always serve fish. And there's a reason for that because that religious institution had a lot of influence in our community. And on Friday they want fish rather than beef. Now Paul says they're going to forbid to marry. They're going to command to abstain from meats. Now he says this is the second church. Look at this. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now who is it that you see on the television? People bowing and calling God. Who is it? Paul said, this is going to happen. This is going to happen in the departure. The second church, see. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he, who may, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. So the point is, at that moment, 
This was being restrained. This departure was already in the works while the apostles lived. But evidently they had the power through the Holy Spirit to restrain it, to, re, to retain it, from, to keep it from spreading and, and growing like it would in later years. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Look at this. He even says this second church is going to be able to, going to, be able to uh, perform miracles. He's going to have power. He's going to be able to do signs and lying wonders. Now think about that. And with all unrighteous deception. Listen to this. This is frightening. One of the problems I see in the church. I was only gone eight years. But we have. We have so many people who, who do not know much about the Bible. I know that by some of the preaching I hear. I know that by some of the problems that we face. Listen to this verse. And with all unrighteous deception, among those who perish. Now why are they going to perish? Because, listen, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now what does that mean? Now Paul's talking about a movement from what is right. We only have one church. But some are going to move away from that one church, that one faith. Why? Because they didn't love the truth. We need to think about this. How much do you love the truth? What do you do when you love so... You know, <laughs> is there anything more precious than grandbabies? You know how long it take me to decide where I was going to go when this meeting was over. If Doyle wanted me to come spend the night, but my grandbaby was over there in Delano. It wouldn't, I wouldn't even have to think about that. That's a no-brainer. Doyle would lose. Because I want to I be with them. I love them. Well, the same is true with the Bible. If we love the Word of God, we're going to be studying it. But you know what happens sometimes? We get busy with our life, and the Bible sits on the counter and collects dust till we come to church. And then we let somebody else read it for us. Did you read the Bible today? How about yesterday? How about in the last week? Do you really love the truth? I want you to hear this now. The Bible says that there is a departure that's going to occur, and the reason it's going to occur because members of the church, people who are members of the one body, people who meet every Sunday and drink from the Lord's uh, cup and eat his body, they're going to leave the faith. And the reason they're going to leave the faith is because they do not love the truth. Listen to what he says further. And for this reason, because they don't love the truth, God will send them strong delusion that they would believe the lie. Now that doesn't mean God's going to work some miracle on your heart. 
But what's going to happen? He's going to send something your way that you like or that you want to believe. And he's going to give you the opportunity to believe that lie. And as a result, you're going to lose your soul. I'm going to tell you that's frightening to me. Because a lot of our decisions, a lot of our beliefs are based on the way we were raised. You see, but the Lord don't want robots. He don't want people that are Christians. He don't want people who are churchgoers because their parents are churchgoers. That's not what he wants. He wants our hearts. He wants our minds. He wants our bodies. He wants our souls. He wants everything. And that's the only way we can be saved. And that's the only thing that will protect you when error is taught. Listen, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, it's difficult to know exactly when the second church started. But according to the World Encyclopedia and the uh, Britannica Encyclopedia, the first pope uh, was uh, appointed in Rome in AD 606. Now, some people believe that the, the, that the papacy can be traced back to Peter, but Peter never acted like no pope. He never acted like no papa. In fact, when those uh, men in Acts 10 bowed down before him and wanted to worship him, he said, you get up because I'm just a man. He didn't allow anybody to kiss his feet, kiss his hand. He didn't act like a papa. He acted like a man like he was. Now, the church of Jesus Christ bears the name of Christ. Now, the second church, departing the faith, followed doctrines by forbidding some to marry and forbidding certain foods to be eaten. Now, which church is right? Which church is right? The first or the second? We know, of course, it's obvious, it's a no-brainer. The first church, the church Jesus said, I will build. The church that Jesus purchased with his own blood, Acts 20, verse 28. The church or the body that we're baptized into, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Christ, the church, his body are one. The faith of that body is one according to what the dictates of the head are. And it all began in Acts chapter 2. The first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus, approximately AD 33. Anything that started any other date is the wrong church. It can't be the church that you read about in the Bible. Any church that bears the wrong name must be the wrong church. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. This is the church the Lord built. He's the builder. He's the founder. And tonight you can be a member of that church. You can be a citizen of that kingdom. You can walk according to truth and you can live by the one faith that will save you. Isn't that incredible? God will save Lorraine. Not because he's a preacher. In fact, that might even work against him. Because I'm a man. 
created in his image that he loves. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What a tremendous thought. I can't help but quote that verse. Because, you know, I think about how much I love my son. Lord willing, you're going to meet my son as a grown man next Sunday. But there, is no, there ain't nobody that I'd give my son to save. In fact, if I had anything to do about it, I'd save my son at all costs to myself. But God, he gave us his son because he loves us that much. He wants us to go to heaven. He wants you to stand before his throne. Won't it be a great day? Don't you want to go to heaven? We're going to talk the next few nights about the history of the church. The glorious, wonderful, blood-bought institution they started. The one faith and how men treated it. Don't you want to be a member of that church tonight? If you will come and obey the gospel, the Lord will add you to the church. If you are in this assembly, but you have drifted away from the Lord, the Bible teaches that we're to confess our sins after we become Christians. The point is, you don't have to have anybody pray for your sin. Now, obviously, if you sin a public sin, the principle for public confession is found in Matthew chapter 18 when even the private offenders brought before the church. But well, we don't have a separate priesthood in the church of Christ. In fact, in the Lord's church, we're all priests. And we can all make sacrifice in behalf of our sin. But tonight, if you're like Simon the sorcerer and you feel unworthy to pray for yourself, won't you come back to Jesus? And as Peter prayed for Simon, we'll pray for you. With outstretched arms, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. With outstretched arms, he says, come unto me, and I will give you rest. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.